Father, we ask that as we open up your word, that you would open up our hearts and our minds and that you would speak and that you would make us attentive to your voice and that in attending to your voice, that you might shape and mold us so that we could be your faithful, hope-filled Advent people in this world. And we ask this in Christ's name and all God's people said, amen. Amen. So I wanted to begin uh, the sermon this morning by asking you a question. Anybody in the room like a good fight? Now, I know that there are different personality types, and some of you, of course, are conflict avoiders. You like to avoid conflict at all costs. But then there are others in this room that you like to actually instigate conflict, And uh, you delight in kind of like stirring up the pot. You know, you go over to, uh, you know, the the Christmas dinner with the in-laws and you just wait for somebody to make a comment that you completely disagree with or maybe even you agree with, but you choose to take the opposite side and you begin a fight, you begin a good argument. Anybody in the house, uh, uh, when you were little, were, were one of those kids who got into fights? You know, you were kind of brawlers. Anybody out there? Come, this is a place you can be honest. <laughs> I was talking yesterday with my wife, Alicia, uh, about this, and, and uh, I, said, um, I said, hey, uh, honey, when you, were, when you were younger, I said, uh, wasn't there a time when you got in a fight? And uh, just kind of for the story, I just wanted to show you a picture of my wife, Alicia, when she was just a little, a little child. But I don't want you to let this cute, cuddly exterior fool you. Though she, she be but small, she is fierce. <laughs> she was at school one morning, just a young elementary school child, and uh, there was a, a young boy that had the unfortunate, uh, he made the unfortunate decision to pick on Alicia's older sister, Summer. And she wore glasses, and so she started to make fun, he started to make fun of these glasses and then tried to, you know, reach over and grab the glasses and make fun of uh, her and whatnot. And Alicia said she just walked over to the boy, and she just pummeled him with her fists. She did say, I think that was the, the only time that ever happened. And then she said, actually, there was another time. <laughs> There was a a young girl that came up and she said, I can't exactly remember why, but I grabbed her hair and I thrust her down to the ground. And then she said there was another time when this girl started to like, she she just started to like touch my face and touch my face and touch my face. And then finally I just broke and I reached out and I just slapped her. And then she said, and there was another time... She said, when I sprained my older sister Summer's wrist, I said, well, how did you sprain her wrist? And she said, I karate chopped her. (laughs) So I'm just saying, you don't want to mess with my wife. But anybody else in the house like a good fight? Now, it's interesting, when you turn to the pages of Scripture, one of the most common motifs, one of the most common metaphors used to describe the Christian life is a fight. It's a battle. Uh, The the great apostle Paul at the end of his life uh, described kind of the trajectory of his life like this. He said, I have fought the good fight. I have fought the good fight. And there are all kinds of battles, all kinds of, of fights that you engage in as a follower of Jesus. There is the fight often that we experience within, the fight against kind of our worst selves, 
You know, we often fight against those constant voices in our head, the incessant marketing calls around us that tell us that life is about purchasing that next product that will make us safe and happy. Uh, We war against sometimes our physical pain or our depression or our demons or addictions or our tendencies to be lazy or bitter or angry or to entertain ourselves to death with social media. Or we f- and we fight f- to be faithful to God's call on our life to sacrifice and to risk and to follow and to love and to be generous and hospitable. And so oftentimes we experience a fight within. And of course, there's also a fight that we experience on the outside. There's a war around us. You know, I don't know if you've experienced this, but very often the moment you try to be a force for good in your home or in the office or in the neighborhood or at school, uh, the minute you seek to be an agent of God's mercy and justice in the foster care system or at the local elementary school or among the homeless population on the streets of Los Angeles or to help a, a sibling get off meth, the moment you seek To get in the fight, you find that there are forces that oppose you, forces of darkness that are oftentimes strong and that are are seeking to sabotage all of your best efforts. You know, it's been well put that the Christian life is not a playground, it's a battleground. And I think many of us have experienced that battle both within and without. Well, this morning, as we close out the book of Daniel, he speaks to us about this fight. He speaks to us about this conflict. You know, throughout this book, you could say that uh, Daniel's, one of the, the core underlying themes is really the fight that Daniel was engaged in. You see, he was living as a minority in a broader culture in which he was in exile, And so he had to fight to be faithful to God in the midst of a culture that opposed his efforts of faithfulness. Sometimes, of course, the opposition came from social pressures around him. You think about in chapter one, the pressure to conform and to go along and eat all of the delicacies of the empire. And then you think about the opposition from the empire in chapter three against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, bow down to the statue or die. And of course, they wound up getting thrown into a fiery furnace. And then in chapter six, there was the pressure to not pray and to seek God that Daniel faced. And he fought against that and was thrown into the lion's den. And then the dreams, what are those dreams about that Daniel saw all throughout? Well, in chapter seven, of course, it was beasts that were fighting against the people of God. And so throughout this book, there's really been this kind of sub-theme of the fight. And now as he gets to the very end and he kind of closes this book out, he gets very specific and concrete and talks to us about this warfare. And he gives us really this vision about conflict. Look at what it says in Daniel chapter 10, verse 1. He says this, in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar. And the word was true, and it was about a great conflict. So now in chapter 10, Daniel's going to get a vision. He's going to get a word from an angelic being. And the content of this word is about what he says here. It's about a great conflict. And then it goes all the way, and the the vision closes out in chapter 12. But again, the content of this vision is about the conflict. 
And, and I think when we stand back and we look together at this vision, we learn three very critical, very important things for us about the battles, about the warfare, about the conflict that we face ourselves in our own life to live faithful to God in a world that oftentimes opposes our efforts at fidelity. And so let's look together at these three principles, these three features of the battle that we face. And the first thing that I want you to see from this text is that uh, the conflict, this fight that we find ourselves engaged with is number one, it is multi-layered. You could say the battle you fight is complex. It is complicated. It's interesting, you know, this lengthy section about uh, this conflict, uh, it really, uh, it, 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 it mainly, for the most part, it's about an earthly conflict. In chapter 11, there's all of this drama regarding politics and political intrigue and militaries and invasions and armies, and there's all this stuff about earthly conflict. But what's fascinating about this section is that the, the, this, this, the, the vision that's all about earthly conflict is framed by a statement about a cosmic and heavenly conflict. And so what you'll find as you read through these chapters is that in chapter 10, he, he introduces not first an earthly battle, but a cosmic and heavenly one. And then he talks about the earthly battle, and then he closes it out by talking about, again, a spiritual or a heavenly battle. And look what he says in verse uh, 2. He says, in those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. This is chapter 10. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth nor did I anoint myself with oil at all for three full weeks. And on the 24th day of the first month, I was standing on the bank of a great river, that is the river Tigris, and I lifted up my eyes and I looked and behold. And now he's gonna have this vision of a angelic figure, this angelic being. He says it was a, a man clothed in linen with a belt of gold, of fine gold from Euphaz around his waist. And his body was like burl, and his face was like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs, the gleam of burnished bronze. I guess he had a really nice tan. And the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. So he sees this vision of this being. And notice this being speaks to him. He says in verse 10, he says, O Daniel, O man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for I have been sent to you. And then look what he says down in verse 13, he said, or 12, he says, Then he said, Fear not, Daniel, from, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humble yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. And then look at what it says in verse 13. This is strange stuff. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me. So he's an angelic being, and he's referring to another angelic being who had withstood him. And he says, but Michael, one of the chief priests, princes, not priests, came to help me, for I was left there with the king of Persia and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision is yet about the days to come. And then look down at what it says in verse 20. He says, do you know why I have come to you? But now I will return it. I will fight against the prince of Persia and go out and behold, the prince of Greece will come. 
And then he says, but I tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side against these except Michael, your prince. And then look what it says down in verse 12. It kind of frames off the end of the whole section down in chapter 12, verse 1. He says, at that time shall arise Michael, the great prince, who has charge of your people. Now, framed between these two statements about these angelic figures that are fighting in the heavens in the cosmic battle, there is this discussion about a battle on earth. And it seems that for Daniel, there is some connection between a cosmic spiritual battle that's occurring in heaven and the earthly political battles that are happening on earth. Or we could put it like this. Paul would later say, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers or power and powers, authorities in this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil. Now listen, he says here, our struggle when we fight, the, 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 the conflict we are engaged in is not merely a flesh and blood battle. Now, don't mis misunderstand. He's not saying that we do not engage in flesh and blood struggles. When you get into chapter 11, it is all about flesh and blood, armies and battles and intrigue and warfare and politics and all of this stuff. But he says, we do not only wrestle against flesh and blood. There is a spiritual battle behind what is happening on earth. And so we could put it like this. Listen, evil oftentimes takes flesh and blood forms. There are real earthly political rulers who do harm and do violence. And there is real flesh and blood forms of evil in war and in cruelty and violence and strife and racism and crime and poverty. But when it takes flesh and blood form, what Paul is declaring and what Daniel is revealing is that when evil takes flesh and blood form, that it participates in something that is above, something that is behind, something that is beneath, something that is beyond, anything that is merely human and natural. And until you come to grips with this, you will never understand the depth and the pervasiveness and the intractability of evil. Now, I realize that to modern ears, this sounds strange, doesn't it? You know, behind, beyond, above, earthly conflicts and wars and stuff we find ourselves fighting against, there is something dark and spiritual. I mean, this sounds to modern ears mythical and strange. Now, of course, in Latin America and Africa and Asia, the idea of spiritual warfare, of a conflict between spiritual good and spiritual evil is not at all an unusual concept. And many people in many parts of the world thinks that the, think that this helps them make sense of their own experience in this world. But we here in the modern West find it a foreign concept. We in the West have trouble with that. Because the modern Western mind says that everything has a natural cause and therefore everything has a scientific explanation. It says that crime and violence and racism and war and cruelty must have a natural cause. And what is that natural cause? Well, it must be bad, bad psychological factors. You know, you weren't raised right or bad sociological factors or, or bad political or economic systems. There's got to be a natural cause to this 
and we can figure it out and we can fix it. And that's kind of the Western modern mindset. But you know, this modern mindset is wearing thin. Andrew Delbanco, who is a great intellectual scholar type who uh, worked at Columbia University, some years ago wrote a book called The Death of Satan. Isn't that a great title? Death of Satan. And even though he says, look, I'm a secular liberal, and even though, <laughs> even though he says I'm a secular liberal, he opens his book with this line. Listen to what he says. He says, a gulf has opened in, in our culture between the visibility of evil and the intellectual resources to cope with it. A gulf has opened in our culture between the visibility of evil and our intellectual resources to cope with it. And he goes on to say this. He says, look, we have jettisoned in the West the idea of cosmic evil, of transcendent evil, of supernatural evil. He says, look, we don't believe in all of that. We don't like to use the word evil anymore. And of course, the reason we don't like the word evil is because it implies value judgments and moral absolutes. And so we use medical terms. You know, we talk about dysfunction and we talk about pathology. We don't use moral terminology. But as the 20th century goes on, it's gotten harder and harder to say that the Holocaust and ethnic cleansing and mass shootings are simply bad psychological adjustment. And he turns in his book to this interaction in the, uh, from the movie Silence of the Lambs. And it's this place in the movie where the young police officer named Officer Starling goes to meet the monstrous Hannibal Lecter. And she's looking at him and, and she's heard all that he's done. And as she's sitting there kind of in the cell about to talk to him and she's there, she, she, she says kind of out loud, but to herself, what happened to him to make him so twisted? What happened to make him so cruel? And Hannibal Lecter heard her and he says, nothing happened to me, Officer Starling. I happened. You can't reduce me to a set of influences. You've given up good and evil for behaviorism. You've gotten everyone in moral dignity pants. Nothing is ever anybody's fault. Look at me, Officer Starling. Can you stand to say that I'm evil? And DeBanco says, the modern West cannot answer the monster's question. And... Isn't it the case that whenever there is some, you know, horrendous tragedy in our nation, whenever we're, confront, we're forced to confront real evil, do you ever notice how quick everyone is to try to, you know, kind of explain what has happened? And so there's a, there's a teen that goes into a school and shoots it up. And within an hour of the tragedy, we're already calling a psychiatrist, and we discover that he stopped taking his medication. And then uh, we learn from his social media account, uh, we find out that he was a loner, that he didn't have many friends, that he played a lot of violent video games. And we study his family history and learn that his dad left when he was three. And we go through all of the different factors to find out what caused this horrendous evil. But even after we go through all of that, none of us stands back and goes, oh, that makes sense now. That makes perfect sense. Why? Because evil is always more than the sum of its parts. 
And that's what it means to believe in angels and demons in the spirit world. It is, it is to believe that evil is always more than the sum of its part, that there is always something mysterious going on that cannot be explained away by bad psychology. Now, that doesn't mean that we dismiss the insights of psychology and chemistry and biology and sociology and family behavior studies. No, of course, all of that plays a role of what happens in the world. Yet even after we add all of those things up, there is always some remainder. There's always some remainder. You say, well, what, what are you saying, Josh? I'm saying that whenever you see someone who is addicted to something and is trapped, that there is a powerful destructive force in that person's life that cannot be explained away. And that whenever a marriage is ripped apart, there is always more going on there than meets the eye. And we could talk about social ills and political systems and, and all of the destructive industries in the world that actually dehumanize people and wars and racism and violence. And we can study all of the factors and, and, and it all adds something to the discussion. But after you add up all of the natural human factors, there is always some remainder. And I think that's what Paul is getting with when he says, we wrestle not only with flesh and blood, but with principalities and powers in dark places. Now you say, well, okay, Josh, what am I supposed to do with this stuff? You know, I, I realize that in certain parts of the world, of course, the demonic, spiritual dark forces is really a daily occurrence for people in Africa, in Latin America, and Asia. And it is often the case that simply uh, people in the modern West are just culturally narrow. And they simply have this very narrow view of reality and they discount the experience of literally hundreds of millions of people in Africa and in Latin America and in Asia and all of that stuff. But in our world today, I mean, what are we supposed to do with all of this talk that, that you know, there's more than going on than meets the eye, that after you add up all of the human factors, there's always some remainder. What am I supposed to do with that remainder? Well, let me just tell you what Daniel did. Daniel prayed. Daniel actually came to recognize that when it came to the, the, the battle he was engaged with, he was faced with stuff that went way beyond his resources. He was way out of his depths and that he needed a resource beyond himself to actually engage in this spiritual battle. Or let me put it like this. Uh, my family was, was uh, recently watching uh, the little documentary series on um, uh, Bill... Um, Bill Gates, called Inside Bill's Brain. Has anybody here watched Inside Bill's Brain? Do yourself a favor and go watch Inside Bill's Brain. But it's all about uh, the work that the Bill Gates Foundation is doing, and it's inspiring. It is so cool. I mean, Bill Gates is, is taking so much of his ingenuity and his creativity and this mass wealth that he's built, and he's plunging it into really addressing some of the biggest problems in our world today. And um, th there's a scene there, though, where um, the guy who's interviewing him, uh, this is kind of at, the, at the, the last of the three episodes. This guy, you know, he's talking with Bill Gates, and he says, look, he says, Bill, uh, if a criticism can be made about you, it's that you think that technology will solve all of our problems. And uh, his response was fascinating. He said, you know, he said, look, he said, he said, technology is just my thing. 
It's what I'm really, really good at. He says, technology is what I do. And he says, if you have a hammer, then every problem looks like a nail. But of course, what he, he, he's, he realizes, I mean, he's an intelligent person. He realizes that not every problem is a nail. And there are problems that you and I face. I mean, you're struggling with depression and a deep darkness that's gone over your soul. And, and yeah, sometimes what you need to do is you need to get out and exercise and release the natural endorphins. You need to go to therapy. You need to spend time with friends. You need to get out and work. And you need to do something that kind of takes you out of that. But sometimes there's an element that is spiritual to your struggles. You know, um, I, I think about my, my, my wife and I, when we were um, working, you know, to, to help get her little sister who was adopted and just came from a really kind of, has gotten herself in a mess with meth and all of this stuff. Like, like when we were seeking to work to get a little baby that was growing in her womb, placed in a home, we found ourselves really wrestling against darkness that went beyond mere human factors. And when you're faced with something that transcends human factors and natural causes, you need a source of power that transcends the natural. And the lever where you tie into that source of power is in prayer. It is dependent, trusting prayer. And so because the battle we face is multifarious, it is diverse, it is complicated, it's complex, then we need to face it, yes, with all of the best human tools and resources we have at our disposal, but we also need to face it on our knees in prayer with deep dependence upon God that his power would break in and do what only God can do. And this is what Daniel actually does. He sets his face to seek God. And thereby, he actually engages in this spiritual battle. So number one, the battle is multi-layered. It is complex. But number two, I want you to see that the battle that we face is unrelenting. I was talking to my wife about the um, sermon last night, and, and I said, the battle is unrelenting. And she says, really? You mean it doesn't come to an end? We'll get there. But of course, you know this to be the case, don't you, in your own life? Doesn't it feel like you, every day it seems like there's a new thing coming up that is, is, is opposing your best efforts to live well and generous and loving and hope-filled and, and positive and, and doing good and, and, and being patient and bearing witness to, to, the, to the light of Christ in this world. There's all kinds of forces that are constantly coming at us. I remember I met, um, I had dinner with a, a, a pastor a while back, and at this pastor's church, he has this internship pastoral residency program where they're always training up new pastors, and they send them out typically to churches that are somewhere between 60 to 150 years old. I mean, could you imagine what it would be like to go pastor a church that's that old? <laughs> but he said he was like this. He said that, um, he, said, uh, he said, I always tell the young guys before they go to the church, he said, you know, he goes, when, when you're going to the church, he says, you got to think, you know, the video games you played when you were a child, or maybe the video games that some of you still play, you know, it's like, it's like you're at one level, and when you're at that level, one monster starts coming at you, and it's got, you know, 10 heads and a bunch of tentacles or something like that, and then you defeat that one. 
And then you're like, yes, I defeated it. But then you go to the next level. And then there's a newer monster that's scarier and more terrifying. This one has 20 heads, not 10. It's got 100 tentacles, not five. And now you've got to figure out how you're going to grapple with this one. He says, that is like church life. He says, you do battle against one thing, and before you know it, there's another thing coming up, and then another, and then another. And of course, this isn't just church life. This is life, isn't it? There's always a new battle, it seems like, that's coming at us. And that is, I think, one of the things we discover in this text. So we don't have a lot of time, but I'm going to try to just breeze over some stuff in this text. So number two, I want you to see here that this battle is unrelenting. So notice... When, when, when he starts to unfold this battle, he starts to talk about a battle that begins in Daniel's time in Babylon that begins to stretch all the way through the, to the coming decades and generations. And notice where he begins in chapter 11, verse 2. He says, and now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. Now here, he, he refers to four kings. By the way, you're going to see some of my best artwork I've ever done. He says, three kings are going to arise in Persia. And then after that, a fourth king who is going to be the king who rules over Greece, who is going to have dominion, and his dominion is going to stretch everywhere. And of course, Alexander the Great was the king of Greece whose dominion stretched everywhere. But then he goes on and he says, after the death of that king, the kingdoms are going to be divided into four parts. And of course, Daniel's kingdom, or not Daniel's, Alexander the Great's kingdom was divided into four main areas, each given rule over by one of Alexander's four generals. Well, the fourth of those kingdoms he then starts to develop in the rest of chapter 11. This is the kingdom of the south. And do you know why he only talks about the king of the south? Because where did the Jews live? Underneath the rule of the king of the south. You knew that, didn't you? So then he, he goes on. <laughs> I told you it was going to get good. Like, so... This king of the south, and he starts to go on in the rest of this chapter. You can read this at home. Um, but there's this long train of kings that, that lasts over many generations. And he talks about this guy raising up an army and then doing battle against these people. And then this guy raising up another battle and opposing him. And then this intrigue and then this marriage alliance. And then all of this stuff is happening. And then finally, at the end of this train comes this king that he really banks on. He just kind of settles in on. And this king is the king that opposes God's people. And in history, <laughs> he kind of looks like a part king and part Tyrannosaurus Rex. What's actually, if you read through the book of Daniel, that is how this king is pictured. And he refers to actually a king who lived in human history, Antiochus Epiphanes. And Antiochus Epiphanes rose up and he ruled over the Jews from 167 BC to 160. And during that period, he exerted a great and a fierce persecution of the people of God. And it says of this ruler that this king shall do as he wills, and he shall speak astonishing things against the God of gods. And he goes after God's people, and then he goes after God's temple and one of the things that Antiochus did when he was ruling over the Jews with such oppressive violence 
was he went into the temple in Israel and he set up a statue to the god Zeus. And he would force Jews to come in each day. He would have a new Jew come in and he would say, bow down to the statue of Zeus or I will kill you. He set up this abomination of desolation in the temple and he persecuted the people of God. And so Daniel talks about this long train of kings and all of this violence and all this conflict that's gonna go on generation after generation after generation. But what's interesting is that although on one level, Daniel is speaking of events from the time of Babylon up to the time of Antiochus, Daniel actually looks beyond those events and he goes all the way to the very culmination of human history, which culminates in the great final resurrection and judgment. And he speaks of this in verse 2 of chapter 12. He says, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to everlasting contempt. And so he stretches this period of conflict and he says, it's not just going to last until Antiochus, but this conflict is going to keep going on and on and on. And what's interesting is when you read through the rest of the Bible, uh, different authors of the Bible, including Jesus himself, draw upon these events to speak about events in their own day. And so Jesus draws on the language of the abomination of desolation to speak about the destruction of the temple that would happen in 70 AD when a new Antiochus, a new evil Antichrist, a new leader would come and persecute God's people. And that was Titus, the Roman uh, uh, general who destroyed the temple in Jerusalem and once again desecrated the temple. And then in the book of Revelation, after the destruction of the temple, the, the author of Revelation seems to, in his own way, be speaking of another Antiochus-like figure that would persecute the people of God, only this time it was, it seems referenced maybe to the Roman emperor Nero who exerted great pressure on God's people. And throughout the history of the people of God, uh, the people of God have always tried to identify different figures in their own time and place who they associated with this antichrist, Antiochus-like figure who would persecute the people of God. Because conflict is this regular, unrelenting, ongoing feature in the life of those who follow Jesus. You could say that this great war against God's people, it happened in the time of Antiochus. It happens, it continues to happen uh, in our world today as Christians are persecuted, as we fight our battles. And it will happen when there's coming a time in human history where kind of there'll be a focal point in history where there'll be an intense persecution against the people of God. And at that time, Christ will return. There'll be a final resurrection that he refers to right here in our text. But here's my point. Conflict and battles is a regular feature of your life and mine. You should expect it and I should expect it. We should expect that as we move on in our life with Jesus, we will continue to face new battles. And because of that reality, what he calls for in our text is perseverance. I saw a, a bumper sticker the other day when I was dropping my daughters off over at school, and the bumper sticker said this, sometimes I wrestle with my demons, and sometimes we just cuddle. 
Sometimes I wrestle with my demons and sometimes we just cuddle. What is that? It's giving in, right? It's, it's saying, look, I'm gonna stop fighting with those things that I know make for my own destruction. The unforgiveness, the bitterness, the depression. Uh, I, I'm gonna stop fighting against those things in our world that actually make for human flourishing. I'm gonna stop fighting against homelessness and poverty and injustice and, and a lack of friendliness in the neighborhood. I'm gonna give up, because I'm just gonna withdraw into my own little world of consuming projects and of distracting myself with internet searches on random things and of shopping. And when you do that, you give up the fight. But what he calls for in our text is perseverance. One of the core virtues of Advent is perseverance. It is to never give up the fight. And listen, some of you, you have been wrestling and you are tired. You're tired wrestling with those voices in your head. You're tired with wrestling against the pressures in our culture to simply consume and entertain yourself to death. And you just want to give in. And I just want to... The the word of Daniel to us is persevere and don't give up. This fight is unrelenting and it is multi-layered. It is complex, it is complicated. But let's just close with this. Oh, (laughs) we're gonna close with this. The conflict is unrelenting, let's pray. (laughs) Sorry. Here's where we'll close. The conflict will not last forever. Can I get an amen? Amen. You can shout amen sometimes here. Again, going back to chapter 12, after he goes on kind of this long train of discussion of earthly battles, after he talks about the cosmic battle in heaven with Michael and the archangels and all this stuff, he says it's all going to come to a head and then brought to a final and a complete end. And what will replace the regimes of death and darkness is the resurrected power of God, which will flood and fill all creation. And his final word, his final verdict over all of the injustice, over all of the abuse, over all the violence in his world, he will speak a final verdict of guilty and no more and shut out. And he will raise the dead to life. Verse two, many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And then verse three, and those who are wise shall sign like the brightness of the sky above and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Listen. This last year, I, I read the book, Unbroken. Anybody here read Unbroken? And talk about a guy who had battle after battle to face. His plane shot down. He's on a little raft. His raft is encircled by sharks. Inside the raft, he and his, his, his comrade are just starving to death. There's no food, no water. They finally get through all of that, and then they land on enemy shores, only to be taken into a Japanese internment camp. And this, this, this man, Louis Zamperini, is just shrouded in darkness. And yet in the midst of the darkness, he holds a candle of hope. 
And it is this hope that one day this will come to an end and he will get back home to his family that drives him to continue to fight, to continue to press, to continue to move forward and never give up. And it is hope that will sustain you in this life. Hope that ultimately the powers of darkness will not win, but God and his love and his life and his resurrection will have its way in this world. And one day this world will be flooded with the love and the justice of God when Christ returns to make everything new. And this good news, this hope, that we are given in this text that the battle will not last forever, that one day after suffering, resurrection, this hope that after suffering, resurrection became flesh and blood 2,000 years ago. And this end time hope broke into time in the incarnation of Jesus, who lived the life that we could not live and who died the death that we deserve to die and who suffered the tribulation that he speaks about here ultimately to come out the other side with resurrection, new life. And that hope is broken into the world in Jesus. And because it's broken in to the world through the resurrection of Jesus, we can have hope that one day God will make everything new again. And you can build your life on that hope, and that hope can fuel you and energize a life of faithfulness in this world in spite of the battles we face. Father, we thank you and we praise you that you have not left us alone in this world, but you have come after us in Jesus. Thank you that hope has a name, and his name is Jesus, and he is broken in so that he might obliterate our own despair and our hopelessness and renew our own hope. God, strengthen our hopes, we pray, in, the, in every season we may find ourselves in right now and renew our strength this morning, even as we share in the bread and the cup, to keep fighting. Let this, this food be fuel to us and our own hope for our life in this world. And we ask this in Christ's name, amen.